Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome to the podcast, and greetings from snowy Vancouver. So I'm looking out my window at the snow that's falling and still thinking about this conversation that I just had with Natasha Myers. We talked about her new book, Rendering Life Molecular, Models, Modelers, and Excitable Matter. This came out with Duke University Press in 2015. And it's such an exciting book. Um, And it's a book I'm really excited to share with you. So the book takes us into the world of protein crystallographers. These are scientists who work with, among other things, ways of modeling protein structure and sort of crystal structure as a way of understanding and working with their objects and what it is to model, what it is to see protein structures uh, and the ways that all of these practices and associated practices pedagogically um, in terms of communication and publishing and research are bound up with motion and movement and body work and bodies and choreography and kinesthetics is very much at the heart of what the book is about. So in the pages of the book, scientific knowledge becomes embodied knowledge. It becomes a world not just of texts and of images, but of motion, of gesture, um, really of movement and dance. So I won't um, go too far into it because the interview is fairly extensive, but I'll just say this is really, really interesting whether or not you imagine yourself to be interested in the contemporary life sciences, in protein crystallography, because it gives us a way as readers to kind of articulate and have a language for understanding and thinking with motion and movement of the practitioner's body um, as a way of getting at the production of knowledge. It's really, really fascinating. Um, it, the, a lot of the characters in the book or the actors in the book come from two different contexts but aren't limited to those two contexts. Um, one is the protein crystallography lab of a tenured faculty member named Diane or named in the book Diane. And it looks um, closely at the experiences of Diane and her students and her community. Um, and the book also, as part of its archive, looks at a documentary film naturally obsessed the making of a scientist. And you'll hear a little bit about that um, as we get further into the interview. So um, it really was a pleasure. I hope you enjoy. And as always, thanks so much for listening and thus for your support. I'm here today to talk with Natasha Myers about her new book, Rendering Life Molecular. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Natasha. And thanks very much for being with me today and for writing a super thoughtful and awesome book. Welcome to the channel. Um, so, Natasha, let's start at the beginning by talking about how you came to work in the field. What brought you to work in STS specifically? Uh, that's a long story, and it goes back um, quite a number of years. Um, I guess I'm one of those people who sort of found themselves in a field that just made so much sense. And um, so I was actually trained 
in the life sciences, and I'd started a PhD in molecular genetics, uh, studying plant and flower development. And I was absolutely totally in love with plants and completely uh, taken um, by the kind of inquiry of the life sciences. And um, so I got myself set up in a lab, starting my dissertation work, my dissertation research, and in a lab I'd already been working in. And But at the same time, I was actually... Um, had a lot of grave doubts about the practice that I was involved in. I was an anti-GMO activist at the time, and I was using Monsanto technology to engineer my plants with fluorescent protein from jellyfish. And so I found myself just completely ethically compromised and struggling with the kind of work that I had to do in the lab and the reductionism of the life sciences. And so about a year and a half in, I changed programs and moved to, um, I left McGill University and went to York University where I did an MA in environmental studies, thinking that, well, if I wasn't going to be a scientist, maybe I'd be an environmental educator because I was really interested in the environment. Um, but one of the first things I was introduced to um, in this graduate program in environmental studies was Donna Haraway's research. Um, and so I read Situated Knowledges and it was, I'd been very engaged in feminist thinking as an undergraduate, but I'd never, I'd never had this opportunity to think feminism and technoscience together. And um, it took me, because I was still a scientist <laughs> and still hadn't really, um, uh, taking many humanities courses, or it took me months uh, to read and reread um, situated knowledges until. But I knew I knew, I knew there was something in there that I needed to understand desperately, um, and I must have read it maybe five or six or seven times um, over the course of three months. And I was like, "This is it. This is what I need to be doing with my life." And simultaneously, I was introduced to Karen Barad's work, and um, and I felt like, "Oh my goodness, there's a whole world of scholarship." Uh, totally dedicated to the kinds of questions that got me out of science, but never, um, I never sort of fell out of love with science. I just realized I couldn't be a practitioner. And so um, I had suddenly an incredible, uh, I felt surrounded by people and thinkers whose work was absolutely um uh, I was like, this is what I need to do with my life. And so I sort of dropped the uh, teaching, uh, uh, teacher's college applications and just started reading a lot of uh, science studies and fem mostly feminist science studies, uh, combining that with environmental thought and phenomenology and, um, and use that opportunity to um, to go back into the kind of inquiry I was doing in the laboratory and open it up and see if I could expand um, and find sort of hope inside of a reductionist mechanistic um, study of, of plant life. And it was um, such an exciting uh, process. Um, and I just knew that I needed to keep going. So I applied to uh, science and technology studies graduate programs um, and um, um, and was sort of suddenly locked into a world. But I arrived in a graduate pro a program that was um, that was based on either historical or anthropological studies um, of the sciences. And I didn't know really what history of science or anthropology of science was. But I was like, sign me up. This is going to be great. And uh, um, and that was the process of actually not not just becoming a science studies scholar, but becoming an anthropologist of science. Wow. 
that is a narrative that makes so much sense. You're my hero. <laughs> I'm kind of like astounded. It just, it makes so much sense. Uh, so the book that we're talking about today that's come out of a lot of this is a really, really exciting sensory ethnography of protein crystallographers that pays special attention to their pedagogy and their training. And that's based on five years of fieldwork conducted between 2003 and 2008 at a research university on the East Coast of the U.S. According to the book, and, and this is a quote, it's just a, a moment that I really like, protein modelers are the scientists to watch in order to see what forms of life and what materialities are coming to matter in the 21st century life sciences. So really exciting stuff, and we'll talk about um, all kinds of things related to this in the hour to come. But in the meantime, how did you come to focus on this particular topic, why protein crystallography and, and this particular way into understanding it? So it was such it was such an epiphany to me um, because I when I was trained in molecular genetics, I was working with long strands of amino acids. I was thinking about DNA as a code, as a text, as information, um, and yet I was simultaneously as a life scientist trying to think about developmental processes. So I was actually trying to think about time and form inside of a cell as they're changing um, over the course of an organism's development. And so I was, but the, the input, the kind of material input I had was just uh, sort of one dimensional code. And so, and this is a partly a factor due to the time I was, I was working in the late nineties. Um, and this was a time when sort of molecular genetics really held sway. Um, the genomic research that was eventually to come out and the, and the, um, proteomic research that later started to really take off had not yet surfaced in the world that I was working in. So I had actually never seen um, molecular structures of the protein molecules that I was working on. I had no idea that about their three-dimensional forms. And so I was trying to do a three-dimensional, I was trying to think in three dimensions about organismal developmental processes, but I only had sort of informatics. And so suddenly I met these researchers who were working in this sort of third dimension and even fourth dimension and really trying to think about the materiality of life. They were trying to think about the physicality of the molecular processes unfolding in cells. And for them, the cell was not um, a site of sort of informatic um, uh, codes. It was a thick rich space, um, full of dynamic movements and protein molecules. And so I thought, oh, this is incredible. Um, but the other clue that was so prominent for me, and this, this also comes, uh, is, is about how I came to learn to see the world that a way I do, um, is because, um, I'm a dancer mm-hmm. and I was trained my whole life in dance and, and sort of didn't really ever stop dancing. Um, and thinking with dance and thinking with movement. Um, and what was so profound to me from the very earliest interviews that I did with protein crystallographers was how important their own bodies were to rendering the kind of molecular details of these molecules they were working with. Their bodies were sort of swept up in the process of trying to articulate, trying to communicate the specificity of these folds. And so in, a, in just one moment, I saw all of my interests, both in the visual cultures of the life sciences and in this embodied performative mode through which bodies move to learn, to feel, to see, and to know. Suddenly those were, those snapped together in the most 
remarkable way for me. And um, I knew that if I wanted to understand sort of modes of embodiment in techno science, that this was a space that I could really start to understand how um, life scientists' entire bodies were swept up in the research project process. Awesome. So speaking of form and shape, in the transformation from dissertation to book, did the project undergo any kind of major um, changes in terms of the way you were conceptualizing it or the way you were structuring it? Mm-hmm. So um, the conceptual, the, the concepts that I was dealing with in the book um, were very clear to me from uh, you know, earliest interviews, like I understood um, that what I was talking about were, were forms of embodiment uh, and these processes. And so I spent the course of my dissertation uh, or my PhD research really trying to unpack um, that particular process. And um, but that had been clear from sort of right from the start. Um, I was one of those people who ended up getting a job um, before I'd finished my dissertation. And so completing the dissertation became <laughs> quite, the, that was the project. I was just going to finish it. And I'd, I'd done sort of enough work to really make the kind of claims that I was interested in. But, you know, I'd already written all these grants to sort of go on and continue doing more research. So um, I got the job and started uh, and, and then just kept going. So instead of sort of ta- leaving the research where it was, um, I kept moving with it. And what was signif- quite significant is that after I graduated, after I finished uh, my own uh, dissertation, a huge efflorescence of um, events sort of took hold of the protein crystallography community. So I couldn't not keep pace with that. And so one of these phenomena was the launching of the Dance Your PhD contest. Oh, yes. An international contest. And so I just finished writing about dancing scientists <laughs> and suddenly they launched their own um, competition. So <laughs> to, you know, outperform each other for who could, you know, articulate more fully with their bodies. Um, <laughs> and I was like, this is ridiculous. I and can't believe it. And this actually like shows up in the book, right? I mean, it shows up in the book. Yeah. So I had to, I, I kept going with the research. I kept following these phenomena. There were a number of other major events happening in the field. Um, uh, a, a documentary was made after I'd finished um, my dissertation. A documentary was made about protein crystallography and also some major retractions of papers happened in the field. So so the field kept moving and so I couldn't stop the research. And so in a sense, um, the research carried on up until, um, you know, uh, about a year before the book actually came out. So it's a much longer duration of research than I'd planned, but it, it in, a, in a sense, worked out quite well for documenting um, the kind of fullness of what was going on in the field. And it turned out in, uh, to be an awesome book. So whatever oh. time it took, <laughs> yeah. um, it was the right amount of time. And, and this is also to say um, that I think my own thinking matured immensely over that course of time. So I uh, took a job in anthropology. I became sort of much more fluent in the anthropological literature, uh, much more fluent in a whole and a more extensive range of theoretical debates. So I was able to bring the book into a broader range of conversations than I would have had I just sort of published the dissertation. That's right. So it was uh, immature quite a bit over the course of those years. So the book itself argues, um, uh, and I'll just kind of lay a little 
brief foundation here and then we can dive right in. The book argues that visual cultures must also be understood as performance cultures. And and we've talked a little bit about that already. It conceives scientific knowledge as embodied and gestural knowledge, among uh, many other contributions that it's making. Along the way, it develops a concept of rendering. So the title of the book is Rendering Life Molecular, and most of the chapters actually explicitly take on some sense of the polyvalent and polysemic um, world of rendering and the kind of work that that notion does. So the first part of the book um, is based in protein crystallography labs, and it entails a few chapters that take us into um, uh, some sort of basic aspects of what's going on, why it matters, so that we can kind of proceed from there. Now, chapter one looks very carefully at the techniques used in protein crystallography labs to purify proteins and, in the words of the book, to coax them to form crystals, to coax them. And that that language is going to be really important in ways that will be clear soon. The sense of rendering explored here is to separate, to rend, to tear apart. You describe in this chapter the ways that students submit themselves to training as a way of rendering themselves up, surrendering themselves, giving themselves to the labor of modeling. And you develop a way of thinking about protein crystallography as a kind of affective labor here. So as a way to kind of open up this part of the book, can you talk about um, the importance of this notion of affective labor Mm. insofar as it helps us understand um, some of what you take to be really important about this part of the book? Mm. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, So the, so this, this aspect, um, this dimension um, of affect, and one of the things that has become so clear to me over the course of this research, but also in the course of my own engagement, so really thinking about um, the effective entanglements of inquiry writ large. And so what is it? to pursue a question? What is it to pursue an inquiry? What is it to get involved in research in the open-ended process of experimenting, whether we're, you know, whether we're scientists or whether we're uh, anthropologists or historians, what is inquiry about? And in my own, I mean, someone who gets quite passionate about my own inquiry, like the work that I'm doing, I, I'm really interested in how other people get moved by the work that they're doing. And so, um, the question of care, how people come to care about their objects of research and how in the process these people themselves are constituted in that relation. So that what I was able to watch coming into being in these laboratories were both, you know, the making of a model of a, of a, you know, a crystallographic model of a protein, but also simultaneously the making of a modeler. And so that these were, these laboratories are sites for training new scientists who must, as you say, submit themselves to this really very rigorous, demanding uh, process where their own, their, their labor is swept up into, um, into the activities that they're involved in. So they become entrained, in a sense, to the rhythms of the experiment that they're, they're doing. And it's this, being pull, this, will, this willingness to let themselves be pulled by this object that often they've never seen, you know, that, that, that may remain elusive for a very long time. Um, I'm really interested in that, those, the forms of the kinds of emotional entanglements that form between a modeler and their, um, their objects, um, and between their models. Um, the, this, this, 
this care, this desire um, to connect often with this object and this form of love that emerges in that, in that process. So um, there, there's this process where these scientists are actually falling in love with their objects. Um, They become um, totemic objects and for them in some really interesting ways. They, these are objects that then come to stand for themselves, for who they are, for their identity. So there's a really interesting mixture um, of relationships that get formed inside of a laboratory. And I'm very interested in intimacies that take shape between humans and non-humans writ large. And this laboratory, these laboratory spaces that I was able to move through gave me this really interesting way to think through that um, and to think about the pull, I think, that these objects have on people, even if they're invisible, even if they're um, intangible, even if they never do see what they've been longing to see and touch and feel and know. So there's, um, so that part of the story um, uh, is, I think, really crucial uh, because, and it ties into this concept of rendering in the sense that um, to render um, which is a process of representation, but the the rendering component, I think, uh, to call it rendering, really amplifies this um, the contributions that the modeler is making to the activity, and a lot of that comes out of these really effectively charged relationships that they have with their objects. That's right, and, and really interesting relationships between the bodies of humans and non-humans, or other than humans or, you know, however we want to talk about that. And I know how we talk about that is really significant. And I don't mm. even have a language um, that I'm comfortable with for talking about that. So I'm just going to say non-humans for the moment. Mm. Um, but those relationships are really interesting here in unexpected ways. And they include, um, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, horse blood uh, mm. and pickle juice and these other kinds of fluids and materials from non-human bodies that get bound up in the processes of purification and crystallization mm. in really interesting and kind of disturbing and unexpected ways. There's this moment, uh, a description of a moment where um, uh, a graduate student i think it was or someone actually goes to a slaughterhouse um, to collect horse blood and has to like watch the horse be slaughtered in front of them and Mm. collect the blood it's just a really um really powerful Mm. moment yeah and so he was a he was a lab assistant he was a very young kind of kid and this was in the um um, in the early days of, of protein crystallography, where, where before substances had been, um, before proteins had been cloned and reproduced in E. coli. Um, and so we were really dealing with bodily matter and like substances from their sources. So whether it was a slab of whale meat that was delivered from Peru or like, you know, you'd have to then blend these blenders in the laboratory to liquefy these things. And so the messy, really, uh, and very often violent work um, that, that was actually sort of made invisible as, um, as the techniques and technologies moved to recombinant DNA techniques, um, the animals' uh, bodies were sort of moved out of the laboratory uh, or, you know, there was a kind of gap in that space. Um, and so the labs now look really clean and all, they only smell like E. coli um, and, you know, and ca- all these other chemical substances, but not like um, flat or fresh blood or tissues. Now, chapter two, um, after a, after um, the completion of a chapter, chapter one, that we could easily spend the next hour talking about. So mm. I just want to mark this. Um, I'm moving on, not because um, there's not 
anything else to talk about, but just mm. because there's lots more to talk about in the book to come. Chapter two looks at the materials and the media that crystallographers are using to build maps and models. And the sense of rendering here in computer modeling is, um, in the words of the book, the process of an outline image using color and shading to make it appear solid and three-dimensional. So rendering here takes us into the processes of making models, um, both um, using physical kind of ready-to-hand materials, but also with computer imagery. And it, you know, considers some of the most important implications of this transition to virtual media. Now, one of the um, major, at least for me, take-home points of this chapter is the point that crystallographers, when they see, are not just using their eyes to see. Mm. They're practicing um, what you call here haptic vision. And you talk about the relations between haptic vision and haptic creativity. Mm. So could you talk about that? Well, for you, what's perhaps most mm. important for us to understand about what you think is most important mm. Thanks for again for highlighting these terms because they're the, it's an opportunity for us to rethink the nature of vision. And so often vision has been imagined as sort of a disembodied um, activity. It sort of happens in the eyes. Um, it happens separate from bodies. It's that it's that um, that sense that's supposed to give us sort of distance and neutrality from things. But the modelers that I worked with showed me so deeply how much their bodies were integral to that activity of seeing and that seeing was a full-bodied process. And so their improvisation with ready-to-hand materials as they sort of would co cobble together models in the early days with styrofoam, toothpicks, plasticine, um, um, wire clips, and other sort of ready-to-hand materials um, all the way through to today where they actually have to sit with the data um, on the computer screen with a three-dimensional model as they pull pieces of um, pull pieces of um, uh, uh, atoms uh, of the of the protein they pull them in and they stick them inside of the model so they're trying to figure things out as they go and so improvisation and creativity are actually really integral and a kind of ongoing movement so the body has to stay really active to see in three dimensions even if they're sitting at their computer with stereo glasses on their bodies are in constant movement in relationship to the object on the screen and so the tangibility of first the ready to hand materials that might have been used in the 1960s and 70s um, as people cobbled together physical models, that tangibility was actually essential in, to keep inside of the interactive uh, molecular graphics technology that was being developed um, much later on. And so it's been wonderful to be able to see how the the, the emerging interactive computer graphics interfaces kind of had to call on the modeler's body, still had to uh, rely on modeler's bodily intuitions uh, in order for them to build sound molecular structures. Um, and so the concept of haptic creativity is actually some, a concept that I developed later on uh, after my dissertation in collaboration with Joe Dumit, who is one of my PhD advisors, as we tried to think about uh, more broadly the relationship between moving and knowing. We looked at a number of other fields as well. And this idea that being in movement in relationship to a phenomena that one is inquiring into, um, that to think, to form hypotheses, to tell stories, to, um, to learn to tell the difference between one phenomenon and another required this kind of, again, this idea of this creative hapticity, like this ongoing 
uh, physical engagement through improvisation right. with materials. So those those concepts became very important also with, for the book. So as we um, kind of conclude the first part of the book, and I won't ask you to talk too much about it so that we can um, kind of move on to the second part, but the importance of kinesthetic work Mm. extends into the third chapter. And you talk here about kinesthetic experiments that are conducted um, by one of the central figures that you introduce us to, Diane, who's a faculty member who leads a protein crystallography lab who we meet at the beginning of the book, um, and also others in uh, their modeling processes. And you look at the way that Diane projects herself into the models that she uses. Um, You also, using the concept of rendering um, that evokes giving over to or giving birth to, um, you look at the ways that modelers are in general giving their bodies to the work Mm. of model making and this sort of um, metaphor of uh, birth announcements, right? Mm. Likening of birth announcements to announcements of new um, molecular models um, becomes part of the story. It's really, really interesting. But um, there are two more parts of the book. And so we should move to those as well. Mm, excellent. So the second part of the book looks at the ways that modelers um, in the in the words of the book know what they know. And it looks at the relations of their models to molecular phenomena. In the fourth chapter, um, the book looks at the abilities of crystallographers to represent otherwise imperceptible phenomena. And the sense of rendering that's explored here is a sense of recital, like to recite, to echo, to reflect, to create. And it's used here to speak to the broader issue of representation in the sciences. So to kind of get us into this, um, let's talk about likeness. Mm. What kinds of likeness are the likenesses of molecular models and the objects that they represent? And what's important for us, again, to understand about that mm. um, uh, for, from your perspective? So this is such a, it's a crucial question and it, because it, it, it brings us to this, this really remarkable phenomenon is that these are scientists who are working in a realm that could be understood as a realm that is imperceptible. Um, to sort of, we could say, the naked human sensorium, if, if it's possible to ever have a naked sensorium. Um, imperceptible or sub-perceptible, sub-visible. Um, we're, we are working with scientists who are trying to describe the contours of atomic phenomena. So at the, at the scale of nanometers, um, Things that they cannot see directly with microscopes, things that can that do not have the same kind of continuity between the physical world that we're living in and um, and the cell the cellular world. There's a, such an incredible amount of scaling work to go on between the between those realms, and so there's a lot of imperceptibility um, that they struggle with. There's a lot of very indirect seeing that they're engaged in, um, where they never actually look directly at a molecule, but they're looking through diffraction patterns of how that molecule re- um, responds uh, to x-rays being um, bombarded through um, a whole crystalline array of those molecules held together. And so they're working in the shadows. And I think that's a really important kind of concept that, that these, these crystallographers never have any direct vision of what they're doing. And so when 
you know, when we think about likeness and we, you know, you want to make a model that looks like something, well, you know, uh, we have, a, we have a whole tradition of taxa, um, taxidermy, which would render a likeness of an animal based on the animal skin itself. And you just sort of fill out, uh, fill out the flesh or models that are made of otherwise things that we can handle and touch and see like, uh, plants or flowers and sort of the Blaschka collection, collection of glass flowers. It's a great, um, example of the kind of likeness that many modelers were trying to generate. But protein modelers you know, they can't actually see the object they're trying to model. And so there's a kind of way in which they they want to be able to represent accurately the location of every atom in that molecule. But they also need to render or make visible, palpable, tangible, somehow material to a user of the model, um, all of the other specific qualities. So the forces between atoms that keep certain, uh, that keep certain atoms at a certain distance apart from one another, or the coils and sheets and helices um, of the secondary structures of the proteins. And so they actually end up having to add all of these other features uh, to their molecular structures that include, you know, um, you know, in their renderings, they look like licorice candies or they look like ribbons or they look like um, all of these hyper colored surfaces, um, all of which have different, um, you know, representational functions. And so um, but there's a, a way in which these researchers can never actually claim that the model they've made looks like the model they're trying to represent or the object they're trying to represent. And so there's a wonderful gap there where, again, their creativity kind of comes in, where they also have to acknowledge really intensely their contribution to the model-making practice and to what it is we come to see and know the, the other people. And so I think that that gap and what likeness likeness means for them um, has a quality that that isn't shared by... Um, in other modeling, three-dimensional modeling traditions in the sciences. Uh, so there's something quite unique going on with these modelers. So another thing um, that's really important that's happening with these modelers is the performative aspect of what mm. they're doing. And the chapter um, really takes seriously the performative dimensions of rendering here. You invoke Karen Barad, Barad, Barad? Barad, yeah. Barad. I told you um, uh, right before we started recording, <laughs> I will mispronounce everything it's possible to mispronounce. Karen um, Barad's notion of intra-action is something that you um, evoke here as a way of thinking about what's happening and what's happening in terms of the performativity of these practices. Do you want to speak um, very briefly to that? Because that's mm. a notion that also recurs um, later on in the book as well. So this is a really important part of the, the, the sort of question of that the book asks, is, which is, you know, well, what is actually being rendered? Um, and so I think it's very important for us to understand that there um, that for these scientists, there is there is an object out there that they're trying to reach towards. But at the same time, their practice shows us precisely how the modeler participates in the making of the object so that there is in a sense there is no object out there waiting to be discovered for them but they are caught up in a set of processes that are constituting the objecticity of something that otherwise didn't have yet substance and so we could say you know there is there's a world of substances out there but there is this desire to bring to render them molecular to make sort of a living substance 
um, vis- visible, tangible, and workable at a molecular scale. And to do that, they're actually bringing their perf- um, you thinking about sort of the performativity of this. They're 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 bringing their already prefigured models of what an atom is, what a mo- molecule is, what a protein is to bear. Those models are part of how they see. And so I'm very interested in this kind of this um, the making of uh, the making of the material world as molecular as a very active contribution that the scientists are are bringing to bear. And yet it is an intra action in Karen Brad's sense in that these are these are the dances that these scientists are having with the material world. Like the material world is exerting its agency. Um, and pushing back and shaping how it is we come to see it. Um, but again, the, the stylizations, the, the contributions, the, the ways that world gets rendered is very much um, the scientists have to be accountable for that work. And what's so wonderful to watch among these practitioners is how willing they are to recognize the labor and the effective labor that they bring to bear to make this otherwise intangible world. Um, visible, palpable, and workable. Great. Now, as we move to the next chapter, um, we move to a chapter that explores the sense of rendering as giving, paying homage, or allegiance. Here, the book explores ways that the crystallographer's models must, um, in the words of the book, maintain an allegiance to actual chemical configurations. And the chapter also, while doing this, explores a sense of rendering in terms of putting forward for scrutiny or approval. Now, the chapter looks, um, as a way of doing this, at responses to three recent controversies in the community of protein crystallographers. Um, this include really high-profile retractions, and you, you mentioned this, actually, um, at the, I think at the beginning of our conversation, right, as uh, kind of events that happened um, kind of more recently, um, but recent high-profile retractions of protein structures published by two different labs, including um, one retraction called the Great Penta Retraction, and I just... <laughs> I love that name, so I need to just say that publicly, the great Penta retraction. Um, but the, the one that I want to ask you um, to talk a little bit about is the other um, controversy. Now, this was a controversy around the simultaneous publication of two different models of the same molecular assemblage. Mm. Now, this, is, this winds up being really, really important in ways that might not be obvious to listeners um, uh, who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, but one One of the things for me that's so important about this is it lets you help us understand the importance of a shift to appreciating the indeterminacy and the dynamic nature of Mm -hmm. proteins. Like, how is it possible that two labs could come up with two different structures? Well, one of the ways that, um, at least for me, you help us understand how that's possible is helping us understand um, uh, what can happen when you shift your notion to a more dynamic understanding of protein um, and proteins. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm. Yeah, and it's such a wonderful moment because it, um, it, it, it's a moment uh, where uh, a community has to start to grapple with their, again, how it is they know what they know. And so um, they're like, well, 
how will we, you know, here we are, we're using these same techniques and we're trying to generate models and like, wait, look, the, the, the same thing looks totally different. And so, um, it's just, and it's, it's not an opportunity to say, oh, well, we, we did it wrong. Like, or, you know, one group used the wrong technique and another group used, we used incommensurable techniques. Um, it's an opportunity for, for these practitioners to grapple with the fact that the world that they're trying to model is not just in motion, but fundamentally indeterminate in certain ways. Um, molecules are as energetic as they are material. Um, molecules move and change over time. They're, uh, they move as they do, as they perform their activities in a cell. Um, and so it's, um, but, and yet the modeling techniques that are very often being used by protein crystallographers are static techniques. And so there's this beautiful opportunity where um, they confront the limits of their techniques, where they have to grapple with kind of very deep philosophical questions about what they can see and what they can know. And as they confront a sort of a molecular assemblage that seems to have different dynamic properties, they actually have to sort of like, wait a second, what, what, if, what if we've only been visualizing molecules that have a certain kind of order? What if there are all kinds of other molecules that ha are disordered or moving in different ways? What have we not been able to see? And so this is a lovely opportunity for, you know, because many of the other controversies had to do with, you know, problems in the laboratory, like either, you know, there was cheating or there was bad judgment or there was bad training such that, you know, these practitioners got the model wrong. This is an opportunity for practitioners to sort of confront this unbelievable phenomenon, which is, oh my God, the world is in motion and we, um, and we can never fully capture it. Right. And so that's this beautiful, very humbling moment for these life scientists. Um, and it, clues us into the fact that there that that a reductive um a mechanical approach to the living uh breathing uh phenomena going on inside of cells is always going to be inadequate and these scientists are are starting to grapple with that in really fascinating ways and so their controversies um help them think deeper about the epistemologies and ontologies of vision um in these fields and as we move to the next part of the book, we also move really deeper into these, pro uh, much deeper into these problems or even deeper into these problems and learn that, um, you know, mechanical representations or mechanical processes don't necessarily have to be reductive. Mm. Um, and so that this idea of indeterminacy and this holding of indeterminacy is perhaps a central part of what's going on um, stays with us um, as we move to the rest through the rest of the book and to the end of the book. And I think really, really important ways. And we'll get to at least some of those ways um, in the time that we have left. So part three of the book looks at, um, again, in the words of the book, the forms of life that are coming to matter in the hands of protein modelers. And a lot of this um, surrounds, or at least the first couple chapters in this part of the book, surround the notion of machines and mechanism. So chapter six looks at biological engineers' renderings of proteins as molecular machines, and it brings us into a classroom. Um, it's, there's a really interesting account of the use of uh, circuitry as a metaphor to describe or as a as kind of a way to describe what's happening um, in cells. 
And you're arguing here in this chapter that rendering molecules as machines is a craft practice that makes it possible for practitioners to, um, in the words of the book, visualize and intervene in molecular worlds. Okay, so you talk here about another sense of haptic practice um, that's really important. And here, it's a haptic aesthetics of machines. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm. So this is um, a sort of a really interesting uh, part of the research where I, I spent a lot of time with these biological engineers, uh, many of whom had come to the life sciences with a desire to sort of um, to work out the fine details of molecular processes, but be able to see them like cogs and wheels interlocking inside uh, as machines inside unfolding inside of cells. And so in a sense, they wanted to be able to rework the biology of living cells by getting inside of that biology as if it was a machine. And so that, you know, they knew how to, you know, um, if you know how to drill in, you know, um, the fender on an automobile at the Ford car plant and you treat, you know, you can also start to look at cellular um, um, uh, parts uh, like cellular machinery. And so the metaphor of molecular machines has been a very longstanding kind of metaphor. But the point of, of um, at least chapter six is to really take it, help us to see that the metaphor is not, it's just always, it's, a, it's more than a figure of speech. It's an act, it's actually a way of physically engaging uh, these um, these living processes and an active practice of turning them into machines, making cellular processes available in the form of these um, deterministic um, uh, mechanical structures. And there's this really wonderful desire because engineers know how to work with these things, but um, and and a way in a sense also of that that life scientists are now being trained, either they're being trained in, in ways of thinking of the cell through engineering metaphors or engineers are moving into the life sciences and making the cells available as machines. But the sort of the lessons here and why, why it's really important to think of it as this is a craft practice, these metaphors um, turn into visualization technologies. They turn into sort of haptic uh, cre- creatively haptic ways of getting to know uh, cells, and they they become very useful tools. Like they actually effect um, um, a much uh, crisper rendering, one could say, of um, the phenomena going on inside of cells. But there's an aesthetic to it, and a whole aesthetic practice. Um, so machines have a particular look and feel. Um, um, you can hear. In, in the documentary Naturally Obsessed, which is about uh, approaching crystallographers um, at Columbia University, you can watch as, as one um, uh, protein crystallographer in training is actually learning how to treat his, his molecular model as a switch. And he, he literally moves through the the gesture to show us and clicks with his tongue, you know, you can hear him it clicking the switch on and off. And so um, it, it comes with a whole sort of uh, discursive, but also embodied practice of working with machines. Um, and so I wanted to understand how it is that machines get worked into um, the bodies of cells, inside the bodies of cells, and how those cells are then made to do certain kinds of work. Um, and so I wanted to understand this not just as a kind of, you know, I didn't want to dismiss this work as if it was somehow, you know, too reductionistic or too mechanistic and um, therefore, you know, problematic. 
uh, I wanted to really understand the achievement um, that these scientists um, accomplished through this work. Um, but of course, what's so fascinating is um, is that even as they try and render the cell as a machine, the machines that they're rendering are not deterministic. They are not um, mechanical in the same kinds of ways. And in fact, they the machines themselves become quite lively. And these machinic renderings actually take on new affects when they're animated. And mm-hmm. the next chapter um, really looks at this. And it takes us in the beginning into a controversy over something called the inner life of a cell um, after David Belinsky's 2007 TED Talk on the making of the film. And this is just one of several examples here. So um, for listeners who haven't had a chance to read this, what's particularly controversial or troubling about animations in this context? Mm. Um, what's important about that for you? So so one of the, one of the challenges, again, as um, as as life scientists grapple with the fact that they're trying to model a moving dynamic, um, a cellular world, um, is that their visualization technologies have always been static and they're trying now to pull those, uh, renderings into time. And so animation, uh, computer graphic animation has become a really interesting tool to allow for that suturing together of, you know, uh, one static image at one point in time to another image at another point in time. Um, and what's been so fascinating is the development of this inner life of the cell, a series of animations um, produced by Harvard um, uh, to uh, help train their undergraduate students um, to be able to see inside of cells and understand cellular processes in dynamic ways. But the animations themselves um, really, um, they're, they're, they're very they're very aestheticized for one, so they have all of these qualities to them. You feels like you're in some sort of underwater um, fantasy land. There's incredible music and scores, and so there's there's all of these extra things going on inside of um, inside of the animation, um, and you start to realize oh that that you know some of the some of the organelles start to look like little animal like creatures, and there's things moving around that have qualities that we wouldn't necessarily otherwise be able to see. And so Belinsky actually, who created, uh, who was one of the creators of this, um, got into quite a bit of trouble um, in the discussion uh, following online, following his TED Talk, where many um, practitioners um, responded, you know, because they are, they're very frustrated by animations because animations rend phenomena in one way and not others. They dictate the time, um, and the narrative form of a series of events, which may or may not have a beginning, middle, and an end in that particular way. Um, and they aestheticize uh, phenomena. But they also make them legible in ways that um, these these sort of practitioners who are objecting, just, you know, they were like, but it doesn't look like that. Why are you making it look like that? And so, again, the problem of likeness comes up. And it's following the debates that the that um, Belinsky and his interlocutors are having on this um on the sort of like online chat, you, you actually, uh, many, many of the issues that they're struggling, uh, that practitioners are struggling with around the epistemic sort of contribution of the modeler and the animator, the ontological sort of facticity of what is supposed to be rendered. Um, and it's a fascinating moment to start to see where, um, where creativity and ingenuity and metaphor and play and experimentation with ways of seeing um, are always at risk of being shut down. 
And so I'm really interested in that dynamic of who gets policed, who polices which kinds of animations and who doesn't let certain kinds of animations hold. And so that those kinds of controversies are sort of the, the crux of that chapter. So this concern with an interest in animation and animating actually continues through to the last body chapter before the conclusion. And this is a chapter, chapter eight, that looks at the ways that the bodies of modelers themselves become animating media, right? And so the modelers in this case are using their bodies um, to animate and to communicate the details of protein modeling and protein crystallography in labs, in classrooms, at conferences, online, in all kinds kinds of ways. Um, Now, this chapter really focuses in on and and crystallizes, in a sense, the importance of movement, um, of kinesthetics, of what you call molecular calisthenics to making what's happening here. And it brings us into also the different contexts in which this kind of movement is self-reflexively valued or or is not, right? Or is something that's actually, um, in one case, for example, um, used to to actively sexualize um, a student. I mean, there's really interesting ways in here that explicitly and implicitly the movement of a modeler's body um, becomes very, very powerful um, as ways as a way of, or thinking about this movement, as a way of trying to get into our assumptions about what bodies should and shouldn't do mm, um, in, the mm-hmm. science, in the sciences. So mm-hmm. there's so much we could talk about here. There's so many examples. Um, we mentioned Dance Your PhD at the very beginning. There's a really wonderful account of Robert Allen Weiss's protein synthesis, an epic on the cellular level. Um, there are accounts of sort of dancing scientists in all kinds of contexts. For you, um, what for you is the most, um, like, what are you most passionate about when you think about this chapter? Mm. Yeah, I'll just leave that. For you, where does your passion lead you when you think about what's most interesting for you about this chapter? Um, I would, I, um, the part that I love so much is this compulsion to move. Like you couldn't hold these people still. And, um, in a, in a space where, um, you know, where a particular, there's a particular economizing logic about, you know, what productivity looks like in a scientific laboratory. And this idea that, you know, a nation, a nation like America needs to be, you know, focused on training serious scientists. Um, and when the Dancer PhD contest is announced, um, you know, the fact that journalists who recovered the stories were lambasted by critics, you know, who thought they could be, how, who could waste your time? You know, not just the scientists are wasting their time, but here the, you know, the journalists are wasting their time. And so this idea that there's some sort of imperative of a particular kind of labor to go on inside of these laboratories. And what I found so um, uplifting and powerful about this, the, doing the research for this was, was how people could not, you know, keep their bodies still, um, how they were called into movement, and actually, you know, hitching a ride on the movements of the materials that they were working with. And these, 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 um, you couldn't suppress it. And so what I found over and over again was in spite of this attempt to sort of police animisms, Mm-hmm. to police modes of animation. So making, you know, uh, molecule, rendering molecules as excitable, lively, or wily. All of these efforts to sort of contain and constrain and limit how we understand um, the molecular realm. 
all of these, these bodies just kept bubbling up with like, enthusiasm, excitement, uh, this incredible energy. Um, and this way that these ways in which these practitioners would just sort of lean into this sort of this invisible space between themselves and their molecule and try and feel their way through it. And so um, it was just this amazing array of, of um, practices. And so everywhere I look, someone would say, oh, my God, you have to look, you know, this, you know, these, the people in this laboratory hired a choreographer to come in and develop a dance so that they could, you know, and it was like this ongoing work and this way in which independently, you know, I mean, I, you know, in 2007, I danced my own PhD in Amsterdam at a a meeting at a scientific, at at this um, SLSA meetings, because I was like, well, my, my, I'm a dancer. My work is about dancing scientists. So let me perform it. But meanwhile, like, all these other sides. They didn't need me to do that, <laughs> to make the case. They were doing it in themselves. And so this beautiful opportunity to witness practitioners kind of just being swept up in a kind of this, again, this is the, it comes back to the effective entanglements of inquiry, um, creativity, um, passion, desire for knowing all these things are not suppressible, um, by the kinds of, um, normalizing forces that sort of attempt to keep bodies in place that attempt to control and constrain how we, how we move our bodies. And I loved um, being able to see that happen. Well, one, one of the many things I love about this is that it sort of reorients us to appreciating motion and movement and moving bodies as the natural state, right, as the norm. Mm. Anyway, even though you're talking about a very particular context, um, I, you know, like we're all moving all the time. Like mm-hmm. I'm, if you could see me right now, my hands <laughs> are doing, you know, like all are like, you know, making bread or whatever it is my hands look like they're doing while they're talking. Um, and it's sort of, uh, I think it's, it really helpfully pushes back against um, very constrained and constraining and disciplining, disciplining notions of what counts and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, like what's a kind of valid, valued way of um, uh, incorporating people and concepts and, and work and labor into um, the metrics of <laughs> where to become the metrics of work um, and, you know, what gets kind of left out of that. So anyway, I really, really appreciated this part of um, the oh, book wonderful. and this chapter. Wonderful. So as we move toward our own conclusion, we also move toward the conclusion or into the conclusion of the book. There's a lot going on here. Um, we'll just barely um, have a chance to kind of take a peek in, but I just want to kind of take us into one point here. So the conclusion begins with a question. What is life becoming in the hands of these 21st century protein modelers? Now, um, one of the points um, that's made here is that the stuff of life is not resolved into fully deterministic machines in the words Mm. of the book. And you talk about the ways that understanding this is a way to push back on neo-Darwinian explanations with cells and molecules that have intentions and desires, right? When we start thinking about and appreciating the fact that the actual work of protein crystallography is work that does, practically speaking, um, attribute intentions and desires to cells and molecules, and this is part of it, how does this help us rethink the assumptions and constraints of a kind of dominant neo-Darwinian um, explanation of mm. life and what it is we, we should think that we're doing. So can you maybe take us um, into the conclusion by talking about this, this again, returning to the theme of indeterminacy and the ways that it pushes back on neo-Darwinian explanations? Mm. So, yeah, so one of, um, one of my own sort of real challenges in 
as a practitioner in the life sciences when I was training um, was this very gene-centric notion of life, that organisms were run by genetic programs that um, that unfolded. The organism sort of was rendered as a passive um, um, medium through which a gene expressed itself. Um, and for me, this profoundly displaced the agency of an organism in knowing how to grow itself. An organism makes, you know, you know, from what I understood um, very early on, an organism makes itself by making use of the incredible array of knowledge it's acquired and stored in its genome, um, but that this process is um, is a creative, ongoing elaboration of that genome over the course of, of a life history. And like an organism, as we know now from epigenetics, can actually rewrite its evolutionary history over the course of its own lifetime. And so I, I came into this project already with a very clear understanding of my of my own sort of critique of neo-Darwinian um, the neo-Darwinian kind of concept of the organism and what became very clear was that I was dealing with a, a set of practitioners whose who's very objects and whose ways of talking about these objects were undermining some of the very logics of neo-Darwinian thinking that they were supposed to avow and so it was just this really incredible opportunity to see what happens when practitioners start to to grapple with the indeterminacy, the this wiliness, the recalcitrance of these materials, the um, this on this dynamic breathing, moving bodies that they could almost see and almost touch, um, and what happened to them and to their their form of storytelling and how they grappled with this realm. So um, I was it was this wonderful opportunity to see these openings for storying the molecular realm so that so many of the critiques that feminist science studies scholars have had about genetics and genomics and its reductive um, um, uh, take on life, this almost disenchanted uh, view of life when life itself is rendered as a kind of deterministic machine, I got to see all of these other narratives bubbling up, these these incredible forms of storytelling as people articulated the wildliness and animal-like qualities of their molecules. Great. Um, so so uh, it was this opportunity to see, um, in a sense, what I'd been intuiting um, from my own practice for for many years. Um, and so what was a really, what was beautiful for me to finally realize that I'd seen was that what I saw was the, the failure of mechanism to fully disenchant the living realm. That in fact, these bodies, just as these bodies could not be held back from expressing themselves, um, they, they, all of this liveliness and this animism and these forms of storytelling would erupt in spite of um, uh, practitioners' best intentions. And so what I love is this idea that mechanism is incomplete. <laughs> um, it, it, um, it leaves open space for telling other kinds of stories. And the emergence, what I saw was this emergence of a kind of lively mechanism that is quite unlike um, um, you know, anything like vitalism or anything like mechanism, but it's somewhere in between this other form of storytelling, um, that these practitioners were able to, uh, access, 
um, through this work, uh, through this very embodied storytelling practice that they developed. Fabulous. And so speaking of um, endings or, or lack of endings, right? Um, we're kind of, there's so much more that we could talk about. This is definitely not an ending in terms of encapsulating all of the really fascinating stories and points that are happening in the book itself, but it is an ending for us and our conversation. Mm. So is there, um, Natasha, I know there's a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention uh, for listeners before we um, I think, um, I think we've touched on lots of, yeah, lots of the elements that I'm, that I'm still quite passionate about and still quite interested in. So yeah, no, I think we're, we're good. So now that the book is out, um, what's currently occupying you? What are you currently passionate about and working on? So I went, um, I went back to the plants <laughs> and so I feel like I've been abducted by them. Um, and, uh, just like, you know, the effective entanglements of inquiry, I am hitching a ride on, um, on plant life again. And so it was a, a passion of mine that I've never lost, um, uh, since, um, since I was an undergraduate in the life sciences. Um, but now I finally feel like I have the room and the space to really start to develop that work, um, uh, much more deeply. And so I'm writing a book, um, about the arts and sciences of vegetal sentience. And it turns out that there's there's not just a resurgence in scientific uh, inquiry into what people are calling plant intelligence or um, uh, or plant signaling and behavior or forms of plant sentience. Um, artists are also getting very actively involved in the work of trying to sort of restage um, some of the findings of science and actually generate new forms of inquiry into plant life. And so um, working jointly with uh, scientists and with artists, I'm trying to sort of open up the space in which we, in which um, these experimentalists, as I'm calling them, um, stage encounters between the human and, and the plant and how in the process um, they experiment with um, this concept of vegetal sentience and what that might be, mean for them. So another fascinating project. Go work on that. Um, <laughs> write that book and I will interview you about that when that comes out too. It's fabulous. Best of luck and thank you so much, Natasha, for making time and taking time out of that work to talk with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Kyla. It's been so great to talk to you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time.